Good morning, everyone. My name is Christopher Preble. I'm the Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies here at Cato. Uh, thank you all for being here. Um, thanks also to our conference staff here at Cato who are exceptionally busy today and this week. They do such a great job organizing our events. Uh, and welcome to those of you who are watching online at Cato.org. <clears throat> uh, recent political tumult and the election of Donald Trump to the U.S. presidency have driven commentators to lament the collapse of a post-1945 liberal world order. The order's defenders urged U.S. leaders to restore a battered tradition, uphold economic and security commitments, and promote liberal values. Some sounded an optimistic note. For example, earlier this year, Jake Sullivan wrote at Foreign Affairs, the system is built to last and strong enough to survive a term of President Trump, but it also needs an update Champions of the order must start working now to protect its key elements, to build a new consensus, and set the stage for a better approach. And here he is. Welcome to Cato Jake. Others caution that nostalgia has obscured our understanding of the old order's hard edges and its shortcomings, and has forestalled a serious assessment of the changes that will be needed going forward. Earlier this year, Cato published a paper by Patrick Porter, A World Imagined, Nostalgia, and Liberal Order. This is my well-dog-eared and flagged copy, as you can see. Uh, quick story about this paper. It started, as many things do these days, on Twitter. True story. Back in January, I was standing in line at my local Starbucks when Patrick launched into an epic Twitter rant, arguing that one could oppose Donald Trump's foreign policies without believing, quote, the fantasy that a liberal world order prevailed before January 2017, unquote. Within minutes, via Twitter DM, we had negotiated a timeline for Patrick to turn the tweets into a paper, and within a few months, indeed, the first draft arrived six weeks after that exchange, uh, Patrick delivered. And the paper, as I said, was published in June, and copies are available here and online. Well, as it happened, we were on to something. About a week after Patrick's paper appeared, Graham Allison published a lengthy critique in Foreign Affairs provocatively titled The Myth of the Liberal Order. Since then, a veritable slew of commentators have weighed in, including Bruce Gentleson, Dan Nexon, Heather Hurlburt, Paul Stanilin, Nick Danforth, Stephen Wertheim, Rebecca Friedman-Lisner and Ramira Rapuper, and Ali Wine. And then in late July, a group of scholars and academics published an open letter in the New York Times reaffirming the importance of the international order created after World War II, and specifically citing the institutions such as the United Nations, NATO, and the World Trade Organization, which it said were critical to economic stability and international security, and which had contributed to unprecedented levels of prosperity and the longest period in modern history without war between major powers. When I checked yesterday, over 640 people had signed on to that petition. And a number of the signatories are here with us today. And then just last month, Foreign Affairs Online featured responses to Professor Allison's essay, including a contribution by Mike Mazar. And wouldn't you know it, Mike is here with us today, too. So if it isn't obvious by now, we're all here to discuss the liberal international order, both as it was practiced and as it was professed. 
And I want to focus in particular today in our discussion uh, on the present and especially the future of that order. What revisions, if any, are necessary? Should U.S. leaders embrace the old order and reaffirm American leadership within it? Or is it time to reassess U.S. grand strategies and bring U.S. goals in line with modern day realities? I've already introduced the panelists briefly, but let me tell you just a bit more about them in the order they'll speak. First up will be Patrick Porter, Professor of International Security and Strategy at the University of Birmingham and Senior Associate Fellow at the Royal United Services Institute. He has written three books, including The Global Village Myth, Distance War and the Limits of Power, which we discussed here at Cato back in 2015, and Blunder, Britain's War in Iraq, which will be published by Oxford University Press in November. He has also published articles in many respected journals, including most recently International Security, uh, and he writes regularly for the National Interest Online. Our second speaker is Jake Sullivan, a non-resident senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, Martin Flug visiting lecturer in law at Yale Law School, and he is the co-chair of the advocacy organization National Security Action. Jake served in the Obama administration as national security advisor to Vice President Joe Biden and director of policy planning at state. He was also Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, and he served as Senior Policy Advisor on Secretary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign. He's also advised Senator Amy Klobuchar from his home state of Minnesota, and he clerked for Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer, among others. He holds undergraduate degrees from Yale and a master's from Oxford. Lastly, Mike Mazar. Mike is a senior political scientist at the RAND Corporation, he joined there in 2015. He had previously worked at the U.S. National War College. Uh, he was president of the Henry L. Stimson Center and a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic International Studies. He worked on Capitol Hill. He was special assistant to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He holds a PhD in public policy from the University of Maryland. So with that, Patrick, take it away. Thank you very much. Uh, and good morning. So I think the one thing we do agree with on this panel is that things are not all good in the Republic. And speaking of Republics, can I say what a privilege it is to be in Washington, where the Romans are never far away, Capitol Hill, colonnaded buildings, and a Caesarist in the White House demanding imperial parades. America obviously is not Rome, but I think it's overclass, it's foreign policy establishment, shares one intellectual failure with its Roman classical forebears. And that failure is to blame the problems of its order on things other than the order itself. The Western Roman Empire staggered under a set of interlocking problems, a depleted treasury, not enough legions for too much territory, external pressure of invasion, an unstable succession system, civil war, a symbiosis of strife at home, breakdown abroad, but Roman pagans blamed this systemic breakdown on a new cult with its strange God and otherworldly commitments. They blamed Christians for eroding the empire's political will. This deflection was suspect as the Byzantine empire showed, Christians could run an empire for a thousand years. And I think there is a similar deflection in today's manifestos about the alleged post-war rules-based liberal world order. Like pagans blaming a loss of faith, they emphasize political will and sideline questions of capacity. They claim that there was a 70-year international order built under America's aegis. 
its alliances, its institutions, its regularity, its rules, ended major war and created wealth. And they say that the order, they admit the order is, they worry the order is now dying. They try and sing the order back into existence, but they blame not primarily its flaws, but say that it is being assassinated by weak leaders, by demagogues, by foreign despots, and backward-looking voters who forget the benefits of primacy. Like Rome's, America's state of crisis was actually long in the making. It comes from an imbalance of commitments and power, a worsening fiscal outlook, a dangerous cycle of war and debt, the rise of rivals and allies getting richer and ambitious. Now, it's true that liberal order panegyrics grudgingly acknowledge the need for change, but they usually exempt from the inquest America's globe-girdling security commitments, assuming the only path to security is dominance, what they call leadership. In other words, they treat American order with its pursuit of supremacy as causally innocent of its own undoing and the crisis now enveloping it, as though Camelot had no structural flaws. Somehow, barbarians broke in in the middle of the night and demolished it. Russian oligarchs, Chinese or Iranian empire builders, and the red-hatted Trumpists they treat as the cause much more than the symptom. But this begs the question, how could such an excellent noble order attract this kind of revolt? And we run into a problem here. Believers credit the order for sweeping, far-reaching changes the absence of major war, economic growth, the coming of free trade. But when things go badly wrong, disastrous wars, financial crisis, resistance, the same world historical, world-defining order was apparently out to lunch. We can't easily have it both ways. Either the order was powerful and pervasive enough to have system-wide effects and transform international life, which then, which then would implicate the order and its doctrines in what went wrong, or, its power and its writ were limited. Weak it was weak enough for delinquent actors to ignore it and wreak chaos, suggesting it was less of an international order to begin with. So the longer we look at these panegyrics of liberal order, I think the more questions arise. I want to quickly pose just 10 questions. One, who, if anyone, don't we include in this liberal order? What are its boundaries? Didn't swathes of the world, non-aligned India, Russia, the People's Republic of China, never actually join this thing? China is a trade cheat, an intellectual property thief. It creates large barriers to foreign investors and mass coerces its labor force. Wasn't its entry into the WTO and the world order supposed to work out differently? Two, what policy guidance should we draw from liberal order and its potted histories? To spread liberalism, should the US refuse to collaborate with illiberal authoritarian regimes or movements? Or should it cooperate with them to make them more liberal down the line? What would a liberal order do with democracy promotion? Would it support, bargain, or oppose a General Franco, a Mao, or a Marcos? Would a liberal order support free elections, even if Islamists or communists might win? Three, isn't liberal order therefore rather indeterminate? Isn't that why President Obama's administration, with smart liberal minds in it, was understandably confused by the Arab Spring and by turns embraced, abandoned, or toppled dictators? Four, haven't we been here before? Leading liberal theorists, John Eikenberry, Ivo Dalda, the Brookings Institute, The Economist, have complained before about liberal order's death and demise. They have accused previous presidents of violating and undermining it. But don't these recurring obituaries suggest that these lamentations 
are less of an observation than an ideological ritual which they level at presidents who are actually trying to cope in a rather illiberal world. Five, when was the liberal order historically? Was it under Dwight Eisenhower who launched coups against democracies? Was it under John Kennedy who threatened West Germany with abandonment if it didn't offset US costs? Was it Ronald Reagan who slapped tariffs on Japan, armed Saddam Hussein, praised Galtieri, and called the Mujahideen in Afghanistan freedom fighters? Was it Bush or Obama, the era of the Patriot Act and secret surveillance and the signature strike? And throughout, didn't Washington actually practice extensive non-tariff protectionism, such as agricultural subsidies that shattered markets? Six, where does the war on terror fit this story? Years of rendition, black sites, extrajudicial assassination, war without UN Security Council mandates. Where does the global financial crisis fit this story? Weren't its stabilizing institutions supposed to prevent the crises that we've now faced? Seven, liberal order emphasizes institutions and rules. So how then do we account for Washington's serial record of abandoning institutions like Bretton Woods, or not signing up in the first place like UNCLOS or the ICC, or ignoring them like the ICJ, or bypassing them like the UN Security Council, or cherry-picking from them the Non-Proliferation Treaty. Doesn't this rather suggest a system not so much of Enlightenment liberalism, but of imperial and vigilante privilege? Eight, liberal order presumes the affordability of US primacy. Do we then think that America's debt deficit mountain is a problem? America's deficit has grown to $895 billion a year as extravagant tax cuts, interest on debt, defense buildups, and rising domestic costs outstrip economic growth. Its debt has grown from 12.8 trillion to 21.5 trillion from 2010. It stands at 77% of GDP today, projected for 150% by 2047. The Congressional Budget Office warns that as these debts get harder to service, they pose substantial risks to solvency with risks of another crisis rising and America's capacity to react reducing. Historically, large military security buildups, which we're facing now, trigger boom busts in the business cycle. So are defence and security commitments off the table of spending reductions? And if so, should America seek reductions elsewhere by raising taxes or cutting domestic programs? Or do we say that deficits don't really matter? Do we say that we can continue a continuous flow of cheap credit from happy financial markets that won't take fright? Would it be wise to run that experiment? Nine, don't liberal projects actually often have very illiberal results? The economic shock therapy visited upon Russia at the end of the Cold War, which helped to create the predatory oligarchy that we're now frightened of. NATO and EU expansion up to Russia's borders against repeated warnings. The invasion of Iraq cheered on partly by a faction of hawkish liberal minds and meant to catalyze the transformation of a region around democratic and capitalist lines. We saw where that led. 10, do we agree with Bob Keohane, not exactly a champion of reactionary rail politic, who argues that the liberal order not only was rigged, leading to stagnant wages, uh, depressed life experiences of working class and underclass, um, predatory or regressive tax policies, but that the order itself was responsible for this outcome. So we can draw together a number of problems here with liberal order visions. At times, they're indeterminate we could draw opposite policy conclusions from it. At other times, it's unrealistic. It proposes the continuation of policies that overstretch the US. 
It struggles to mention and deal with the long historical record of America's compromises with, accommodations of illiberal forces and alignments with them, and the long history of the superpower exempting itself from institutions or laws as it pleases. In fact, an imperial system of power relations. It offers, I think, a loose account of cause and effect, taking credit through correlation for good things and blaming bad things on exogenous forces. And five, it makes it harder for us today to forge a coherent grand strategy for the future. So I began this by talking about the Roman Republic and I'll end talking about an imperial throne because that's on the front cover of Ivo Dalda's forthcoming book, which is called The Empty Throne, America's Abdication of Global Leadership, which has an empty chair at the end of a boardroom. And this purports to be an image or a manifesto for liberal order and yet we reach very quickly to a desire for global monarchy. The false premise, partly monarchical, partly corporate, rather ironically Trumpian, of an orderly world or business executive table awaiting for a single CEO or chief executive to take charge and impose his will or her will. I think this no longer holds. I think it derives from a post-war period or a memory of a post-war period that we cannot have back, no matter how much we want it. When the US rose through a war that shattered Europe and Asia, that were a set of atypical and temporary conditions that enabled an unusually high and temporary power imbalance. And that is not today's world where I think power and wealth are more diffuse and we're entering a period of competitive multipolarity. So ritual pleas for a single leader chairing the board might be more the problem than the answer. And I think also unbecoming of a republic. The question before us is not whether the US ascent in World War II was a good thing. Clearly, it was a good thing compared to the rival models on offer. The question is whether the US should secure itself by maintaining the pursuit of dominance and resisting multipolarity, or whether it should secure itself by accepting multipolarity and negotiating a new balance of power. First order questions are on the table that visions of liberal order have so far not really addressed. Should allies pay more for their own defense? Isn't half a trillion dollars a year more than enough on defense? When does the US actually accommodate illiberal allies to pursue security? To adapt, the US is gonna have to do what it's done before, sometimes accept and sometimes betray liberal principles because ordering the world is a rough and indeed illiberal business often imperial, frequently violent, often tragic. Hence, America's fraught diplomatic history. And it rests on the exercise of privilege by an ordering power. We can tackle these questions, or we can summon a romanticized past while accusing rebellious voters of being backward looking. Thank you very much. Well, <clears throat> that was such a wishy-washy presentation that I just, I'm not quite sure what he was driving at with his comments. Um, you know, I'll just start, a, a few of you in the audience have heard me tell this anecdote before, but um, I worked, as Chris mentioned, on Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign, and I was in Ohio at a campaign event, and I made the mistake of using the phrase liberal international order in answer to a question that was posed. And someone came up to me afterwards and said, I don't know what that means, but I don't like any of those three words. <laughs> uh, so actually, if you read my piece in Foreign Affairs, which talks about the international system that 
Patrick and the rest of us will be discussing today, you'll find I don't use that phrase, liberal international order. I'm now sort of, that, that was a, a, had a bit of a Pavlovian impact on me. I'm now, um, you know, somewhat uh, reticent to talk in terms of liberal international order because I agree with Patrick, it is an indeterminate phrase and I will come on to the history of the order that we're talking about, but, but I wanna start um, at the end of Patrick's comments with two observations he made that I thought were quite interesting. One, he said, yeah, I'm not arguing that it wasn't a good thing that the United States uh, prevailed in World War II and was a key actor in designing the institutions afterwards. Lord knows whatever else would have come might have been worse. Well, that's an interesting way to finish after 10 minutes of just basically saying the U.S. is responsible for all manner of perfidy, war, poverty, destruction, and death in the world. But it points up a really critical factor, which is that you always have to look at what the alternative would be if it were not for the United States. Has the US made mistakes over the last 50, 60, 70 years? Absolutely. Was the war in Iraq a catastrophic mistake? It was. I do not believe that arguing on behalf of American leadership requires that you own every decision taken along the way because foreign policy is imperfect people making imperfect decisions based on imperfect information and imperfect choices. So they are going to get imperfect results. And it's interesting to me that Patrick finishes by saying, actually, I'm not gonna try and defend the proposition that the US being more in the driver's seat than say a much more illiberal uh, authoritarian um, or potentially dangerous actor would be if they were there instead. I agree with him on that. And so I think that's a fundamental challenge uh, to the proposition that he's setting forward. Now, one of the things that he spells out in his remarks that, that I wanna take some issue with is the idea that order necessarily means a hierarchy in which you have one country telling every other country what to do, and that's how this is gonna be. That's a pretty unattractive idea of order and a pretty unattractive idea of leadership. I'm not gonna defend that notion of the US as uh, issuing directives that everyone else must comply with. Rather, I will start from the basic premise that what we are talking about when we talk about the international system or we talk about international order is effectively a system of rules and institutions and partnerships and treaties that seek to do a few basic things. Reduce the possibility of conflict between states, mobilize cooperation to solve challenges that no one country can solve on their own, and set rules for international and transnational conduct that are predictable and can largely be followed by all, whether it's on something as simple as civil aviation or much more complicated questions about rules around trade and investment. That is fundamentally what we are talking about. And the question is, is such a system, would such a system be a good thing inherently, or should we just have some sort of complete balance of power anarchy. I would argue that an effort to impose some order of that kind for those purposes is always going to be imperfect, is always going to fall short, is always going to run into power politics, but will produce better, more durable, more sustainable outcomes than a, a, the dog-eat-dog -dog world that Trump, and zero-sum world that Trump talks about. And I would further argue that for the major challenges that the United States faces in the world today, and I would put them in two categories, threats from states and threats from non-states, that both sets of those, both categories of major challenges require the mobilization of common action and cooperation among a range of actors, and that that cooperation is not going to happen by spontaneous combustion. 
is not going to happen by a committee coming together and collectively agreeing to things. It will only happen if there is an actor who is mobilizing that cooperation. With respect to the first category, threats emanating from states, today I think we face a real challenge from uh, authoritarian actors in the world who want to press a more illiberal vision uh, and that the United States needs to mobilize like-minded states, democracies, to push back against that. That requires a form of leadership. That leadership does not have to be directive. It does not have to be insistent upon my way or the highway, America right or wrong. Indeed, to the extent that it, it has to take account of and uh, adjust for the inputs and uh, the contributions of others, it will require more leadership, not less, more work to galvanize and rally those countries. And then for the, set, the second category of threats, threats like climate change or pandemic disease or the possibility that weapons of mass destruction fall into the hands of terrorist groups or a global financial crisis for that matter, that requires global cooperation among liberal and illiberal states alike. And that too is not going to happen by spontaneous combustion or by committee, nor do I see any other individual state out there that is likely to step in to do it, not China, not Russia, not anyone else. And by the way, if there were another state, I would like you to seriously ask yourselves, would you prefer that state to be taking on the leadership role rather than the United States? And from my perspective, the answer to that question is plainly no. So I just want to start there with what I think is a more modest, more durable, and more fair set of propositions about what I stand for in terms of defending uh, and supporting the, the sustainability of US leadership, even in a world that has changed dramatically over the past 25 years, as Patrick says. So with the rest of my time, what I really want to talk, I, I want to come back to the evolution of this order and why I think it's sustainable. Patrick is absolutely right. If you think about the liberal order, and I, I've never quite written this, I'm, I'm throwing this out there as a very a crude heuristic. You might think about it as having an economic dimension, a security dimension, and a political dimension. In the Cold War, the security dimension was global in the sense that the US and the Soviet Union had to work out a series of arms control agreements, um, had to come up with a mode of existence that essentially encompassed everywhere. Now, that didn't mean that there was peace everywhere, but it meant that you essentially had a global set of understandings to avoid great power war. The economic dimension was by no means global. You had part of the world trading and operating within a liberal framework and part of the world in an autarkic closed system. And the political dimension was by no means global. Indeed, you had a massive class of, clash of ideologies at the heart of the system. So then the Cold War ends. The security order remains global, although the emphasis shifts to shared threats over great power competition. The economic order goes largely global, particularly with the entry of China into the WTO, and I'll come on to the challenge of China within that economic order in a minute. And the political order advances, uh, adding new democracies through the 1990s and beyond, but never goes global, okay? It was never every country in the world, every major country in the world, buying into the political liberalism that the United States set. So let's start from the proposition that at no point was there a universal liberal international order. I'm not making that argument. I don't think Mike's gonna make that argument. And I think to the extent Patrick is attacking that argument, he is attacking a straw man. So now the question is, where are we today? 
And what I would argue is that all three elements of that order are under pressure, but all of them are more resilient than are given credit for. The security order is under pressure and yet is adjusting in ways, I think, that it actually has the potential to produce positive security outcomes. The total failure of Kyoto has given way to Paris, which is not a conclusive answer to the climate change issue, but is a big step forward. Uh, the non-proliferation treaty, which as a global matter was under some pressure, led to both the nuclear security summit that has locked down loose nuclear materials and the joint comprehensive plan of action with Iran, where great powers could come together to solve a localized non-proliferation challenge. I could give other examples of how there's been an adjustment from these big formal structures to more informal problem-solving arrangements that are making progress on some of these big security matters. Now, meanwhile, you do have Russia and China coming out and saying, we don't like a global security order that doesn't recognize our spheres of influence. But I would argue, and we can talk more about this in the Q&A, that neither is in a particularly good position to enforce a kind of significant sphere of influence without getting big, big pushback in their region and having countries balance against them. And, and so I believe that the security dimension of this order is more resilient than people would think. Now on the economic dimension of the order, uh, you have had the WTO under enormous pressure from uh, countries like China, which do not play by the rules, do not even conceive of the same set of rules as the rest of the United, uh, as the United States and many other actors in the international system do. But, and then you have this crisis within the West, which I think uh, Patrick correctly points out. I completely agree with Bob Cohane's argument, as I mentioned in my piece, that the system has been to a certain extent rigged. And so you do need major adjustments to the domestic compacts in the West, particularly in the United States, to go with a strategy globally that puts some curbs around China's flagrant treat cheating in the system. And I believe the system's more resilient because actually that, in my view, is where the center of gravity is shifting in terms of the US domestic economic conversation and where the United States and Europe have the capacity, working through uh, plurilateral arrangements and the like, to be able to set rules that will put more constraints on China's capacity to free ride, selectively stakehold, or otherwise abuse the system as we go forward. And I would also argue that for as much as the United States was responsible for the global financial crisis, it was the existence of these cooperative capacities, these networks, that allowed us to work in an international cooperative way to make sure the Great Recession did not turn into a Great Depression, which it easily could have done. And that is another source of resilience in the system. And then finally, on the political side, I think here uh, you, we face the biggest challenge right now, the most fundamental challenge. And since I wrote my piece, I've, I've been doing further thinking on this because I am concerned that the combination of forces within and without uh, of illiberal, neo-fascist, um, authoritarian impulses that have arisen across the West and are being pressed upon us, that this does call into question the degree to which the system that we would like to continue to advance um, is sufficiently resilient, can withstand these pressures. And I do think that finding ways, both at home and in terms of defending uh, against the kinds of assaults that we saw by Russia in 2016 uh, and, and the continued forward press of um, these kinds of uh, uh, illiberal forces 
it raises a large question for me. I don't think that we are right now in a, in a perfect position to respond to this, but it feels to me that we have all the tools we need to do so if we get our strategy right, if we get our policy right, and that should be a big focus of our conversation as we go forward. I'll just say one more word before finishing. I haven't mentioned Trump yet. I do think I have never argued, and I think, again, this is a straw man from Patrick, that, that Trump is the cause of all of this, or he's just you know, he, we'd all be fine if it weren't for him. I believe that Trump is the epiphenomenon, that, that he comes out of the fact that there were a series of forces bubbling up from below, putting pressure on this system. I absolutely believe that, and I believe that to respond to Donald Trump effectively, we have to take a page out of the playbook um, of uh, those mayors and cities that have been hit by hurricanes. The, the story is build back better. You don't just rebuild your infrastructure exactly as it was. You build it better to withstand the kinds of threats you're going to face in the future. And I think post-Hurricane Trump, that is exactly what uh, the United States, its partners, its allies, and even its competitors need to think about doing as we try to update and refurbish the elements of this international system as we go forward. Uh, so I will leave it at that and, and look forward to the back and forth. So I find myself agreeing about 98% with Jake and about 50% with Patrick. Um, I am grateful, though, to Patrick because now I can go home and tell my kids that I'm a member of the overclass, whatever that is. Is that give me some special privileges? I'm not sure. Uh, I'm sure they would point out, though, that, uh, yeah, he also said you write potted histories, Dad, and that's, that's how we know you. Um, so I left a few copies. At RAND, we did a two-year uh, in-depth study on the post-war international order, uh, produced a, a range of different looks at specific countries, different kinds of issues. Um, I left some copies out, but the views I'm going to give you today are strictly my own, my own personal views. They are not the specific findings of any RAND study and, and don't reflect the views of RAND. I think the, the basic argument that I want to make is, um, critiques that I've seen over the last couple of years of this post-war international order tend to conflate at least three different things. And this is a, similar to what I think Jake was saying. One is U.S. power and predominance. A second is the core post-war order, and I agree very much that we stopped in this study at some point using the term liberal international order because it is not, was not the original founding intent of the, the initial institutions, and it conflates two parts of it. And then the third piece is the liberal aspect of the post-war order that emerged in terms of human rights conventions, democracy promotion, a whole other variety of things. Those are three different things. I agree with Patrick's arguments about US predominance and the fact that we're gonna to have to have a more restrained approach to the pursuit of our interests abroad. To me, that does not mean that the post-war international order is illegitimate or unnecessary. In fact, quite the opposite. It means that as the level of U.S. predominance recedes, we are going to have to have uh, a more multilateral approach to a shared order to keep this thing from falling apart. So I think those are two very different things, and having an order simply does not presume U.S. primacy. It does not presume the United States going around the world doing all this stuff. In fact, many of the members, and in fact, countries like China, India, a whole range of other countries have joined a tremendous number of the institutions, forums, processes of this post-war order. Most of them, apart from the United States and some of our European allies, are basically Westphalian in their thinking, like China is. They prefer the sovereignty aspects of the post-war order over the liberal value promotion aspects. So for the United States to back off some of the degree of our interventionism, of our pursuit of primacy, is not 
uh, to say that we will abandon the order at all. They are two different things. So in terms of this question of Another big piece of the piece that I'll sort of talk about most in Patrick's argument and a number of the arguments that have come up is that this post-war order was a fantasy, it was never real, it was a myth. I think that's just flatly wrong and there's mountains of evidence that, that contradict that. And I want to speak about three key aspects of it. One is the history and I think Jake mentioned this, but the critics routinely, I think, exaggerate the initial goals of this thing. Obviously, FDR had a concept of four policemen running the world, one of which was going to be the Soviet Union. He did not have a sense that the United States was going to be invading places and installing democracy all over the world at the beginning of this notion of order. The architects of the economic components of the order, the GATT, what became the WTO, the whole penumbra of economic institutions that emerge around that, did not necessarily have a sense that this was going to solve all the world's problems overnight. None of the architects of the order really thought that. But they did think, as you find even a statement in NSC 68, and I'm paraphrasing, but more or less NSC 68 says, in, in a shrinking world, the absence of order is increasingly intolerable. And that is the same sense that Jake is talking about, that our shared interests in what we call a globalizing world, but apart from the baggage of that term, from an increasingly interdependent world, demand that we find ways of ordering our relations or we are all going to pay a price. From the beginning, this is a very self-interested argument, but it's also a limited argument. It's an argument that says that these institutions can complement other things, such as US power and leadership, such as the trend of democratization, which produces a predominant value-sharing community of democracies around the world that buy into most of the norms of this order. It can be a contributing factor, and that was always the argument for it. So secondly, the value proposition, has it made that kind of a contribution? I think absolutely yes, and you can look across a whole range of institutions. Again, the evidence we should be looking for is not that it uh, overturned the world order and made everything all right, or that it operated independent of other factors, such as US economic or military power, but that it had some role. And I will tell you that in the work we did, trying to isolate uh, those causal variables is tricky because there are so many factors. If you look at, I mean, it is true that a handful of the cases for the order sort of say, look at the post-war growth in global GDP, look at the post-war growth in global democracy, and we had this order, ipso facto, the order produced this stuff. Of course, that's too simple. But if you look more specifically for particular issue areas or cases in which institutions, norms, processes, rules made a difference in supporting other elements, you can clearly find them. Everything from the baseline sort of thing, as Jake is mentioning, if you're talking about aviation, standard setting, uh, post office agreements, all sorts of basic things that make the world function properly, you've got those you come up into uh, more specific case studies like post-2008, where you have the G20, the Bank for International Settlements, a host of international organizations that play an essential role, and not just the organizations, but the relationships that have been developed over time because people are working together in the IMF, the World Bank, the BIS, all of these organizations, people that can call each other on the phone, people that have a sense of shared interest which is also prompted by this post-war order, so that when Russia approaches China and says, let's short the dollar and make this worse for the United States, China says, you know what? That's really not in our interest. We are sort of a stakeholder in this process. As much as we like to violate some of its rules, we don't want to bring the house down around our head. So you get that sort of shared interest, and we found extensive evidence 
for specific value proposition of the order in contributing to the shared interest, and in particular to US goals. And then the third piece I would highlight is the current commitment. So one of the things we did in the study is went all over the world, talked to people a variety of different countries about this post-war order. What does it mean to you? How do you think of it? It is remarkable how many capitals you can visit where people talk about how this thing called the liberal, the post-war international order, is an essential component of their national security strategy. Japan and Germany are leading examples of this, but you see it throughout uh, South Latin America. You see it in many places in Asia where countries specifically say, we recognize that a process of ordering benefits us, we are committed to it, we want it to succeed. They don't think of it as a myth. Their officials, their diplomats have participated in these institutions and these processes. They've seen the difference that it makes. They know it's not a panacea, but they know it's better than the alternative. And they also know, and this is where I'll sort of come to my final theme, I agree with Jake, that US that some catalytic leadership of that order is essential, and that on the whole, as much as many resent uh, the overbearing US attitude at times or specific US policies, they've more or less applauded the US leadership of that. Now, one last thing I'd say about the value proposition, the commitment to it, an interesting aspect of this to me is, and there's a couple of political scientists that have been making this argument, is the idea of a sort of a gravitational pull. So, you get a post-war economy created, the institutions that manage it, you have the growth of democracy, so now if you look at countries that, that by a number of criteria, participation in international institutions, respect for international rules, um, you know, contribution to foreign aid, a whole bunch of different criteria, are the countries that you would think of as the order-producing main countries of this post-war system. You got about 40 countries largely the OECD countries and a handful of others, a predominant core of mostly value-sharing democracies who disagree on a lot, but agree on many of the, the foundational rules and norms of this order. But more than that, getting back to Tom Friedman's old golden handcuffs argument, there has emerged this gravitational force that if you want prosperity in the world that has been created since 1945, you cannot exempt yourself from this order. You have to try to be a part of it, which accounts obviously for so much of reform processes, neoliberal reforms in many countries, China's joining of many economic aspects of the order. That then becomes a very powerful national interest-based trend or argument why countries get pulled together in ways that ultimately make them see the need the, the interdependent reality of the system and the need for shared order and rules. If you are a national leader today and you want prosperity for your people, there is no alternative other than the core order that we have. Now that can be hegemonic, it can be overbearing, but it also creates something beyond sort of an idealistic, can't we all get along and have an, a bunch of rules that govern our conduct? It is a very profound aspect of, of national interest that's at stake. One thing I would just quickly say, Patrick mentioned a lot of the inconsistencies. We've had this order, and the United States has gone around the world and done all this stuff. A lot of countries have violated rules. Of course they have. Two things I would say. One is, again, distinguish the core post-war order, the UN system, the GATT WTO, major regional institutions, the EU, NATO, ASEAN, the African Union that have cropped up from the liberal aspects of the order. They are two different things. They overlap. And the United States and many of our friends and allies want 
to encourage the advance of liberal values over time. But they are not the same thing. And countries like India and Brazil and South Africa will lecture you at length about how they are not the same thing. And the United States has put all of this interventionist effort into promoting liberal values, sometimes at the expense of the core order. So of course you're gonna see a lot of violations, particularly of the liberal values, uh, but that doesn't mean that there's not uh, an order going on. So, but back to the theme which that I started with, the difference between US power and the order. I do believe that over time, particularly in the post-Cold War era, absent sort of checking powers in the world, the United States' natural missionary sensibility uh, attained a degree of intensity that eventually became a threat to the order itself. And one example I will give, and again, this is Mike's personal opinion, is NATO enlargement. The effort to promote liberal values into the very backyards and up to the borders of other countries that certainly consider themselves great powers, who ought to have an equal voice in the running of any order, was always bound to create enormous tensions. The, part of the insight of the original architects of this order was that you have to have the great powers on board with any order. That's the story of all historical orders. They're always built to begin with around some mutual agreement to respect interests of the great powers. Since 1989, thereabouts, the United States, I think, has, has done a variety of things. Iraq and Libya added to the list, which, you know, are cited not only by North Korea, but also by Russia and to some degree by China as examples of American behavior that proves there is a threat to them emerging in this world that they have to respond to and reduces their potential support for other elements of the order. So to me, the overwhelming question for US policy over the next couple of years is how do we reconcile these two basic realities? The continuing relevance and need for a multilateral system and the value and, and value to us for our interests of the United States leadership of that with increasing tensions and inconsistencies built around an American missionary sensibility and drive to uh, promote liberal values, which on its own is very worthwhile, but has led us to do some of the things that are some of the biggest threats to the order. So Jake mentioned we have to build back better, and I think that's a debate we need, is what does that look like? Because I'm not saying he meant to imply this. If it means build back exactly the way everything was, that's not going to happen. A lot of major powers in the world are not going to tolerate that. We do have to build back better, but in a new and different way. And that demands, I think, a degree of nuance in thinking about international order and the role of American power in it that would be fairly unprecedented for U.S. foreign policy debates. We'll see if we're capable of it. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. I'm going to make two very quick observations, not really much of a comment, but an ob two observations, and then open it up to audience Q&A. And I know that Patrick is champing at the bit, but he's a very clever man, and he's going to figure out a way to weave into his responses to your questions the answers that he actually wants to give. Um, two quick points. Um, picking up on something that, that Mike said near the very end, um, there are, there is and has been a tension between different elements of the order, between uh, sovereign equality and sovereign rights in particular, 
and human rights and liberalism, classical liberalism as we think of it here. Uh, there is also a tension between economic openness and sovereign equality and things like that. And reconciling those um, uh, points of tension within the order were quite easy when the United States was able to not always practice what we preached, right? We could just sort of we would just sort of take it or leave it. There was a certain take it or leave it sort of uh, uh, period. And I think Mike, your own work, Mike and you and Mike Kaufman have also pointed this out, that we didn't adequately account for the change in power relationships and we continued to think that we could make, you know, sort of call the tune and expect others to dance. And this relates to something that, that Jake said. Precisely because the United States has spent uh, a lot of money and time and even human lives in sustaining this order, um, there is a discomfort on the part of many Americans to not getting everything we want, right? Why is it the United States bears all these costs? Why is it that we can't expect others to just do what we say? And we know who exploited that with reckless, you know, ruthless efficiency, not reckless, ruthless efficiency. Well, reckless sometimes. So this gets to Jake's initial point. I, I hadn't heard this story before. The voter in Iowa says, I don't know what the liberal international order is, but I don't like all three of them. I think there's a real obligation, and I think you've all spoken to this, both here and in your writing, there is a real obligation to explain to the American people um, how we are going to reconcile these things. And, and if we come out in the end saying we have to continue what we've been doing and it's going to cost a lot of money, then we need to have a, a serious conversation with the American people about how we're going to pay for it because Patrick cited several statistics about our debt to GDP ratio, which are off uh, by a factor of six or seven. Uh, if you consider our uh, actual fiscal imbalance, which is the commitments that we have made to people now and into the future, it is not our current account deficit. It is six or seven times worse than that. So I just offer those as comments, not so much as questions. You can pick them up, up on them as you like. So thank you all for being very patient. We have about 25 minutes for Q&A. Uh, a couple ground rules here. Please wait to be called on. Please wait for the microphone for the benefit of those who are watching online uh, and so they can hear your question, announce your name and affiliation, and if you, if you have one. And uh, lastly, I'll remind everyone the Jeopardy rule applies here at the Cato Institute, which means that you should phrase your question in the form of a question. Uh, I will do my best to enforce that rule. Who would like to ask a question? Way in the back, sir. Sorry, I made my microphone holders walk all the way down to the front, and then I'm sending them all the way back to the... Uh, thank you. I'm Dave Rubinowitz. I'm a retired engineer. And uh, I think uh, Patrick Porter very clearly demonstrated that if you ignore details, you can prove anything you want. And as an engineer, I know that if you ignore details, you can't understand or fix anything. Now, if you look at U.S. history between... Uh, since World War II, it's been an alternation between Democratic and Republican governments, uh, the, and the difference in policies, international uh, deficit and military, between those two different regimes is very different. Uh, and you can't just lump them all together. Wouldn't it be more accurate to refer to the things that uh, Patrick did, did, didn't like 
about the international order to attribute it to the conservative international order? I think Patrick would have an answer for that, wouldn't you, Patrick? Do you, do you want to take a few, or should I? No, go ahead. We have time. We have time to. We, uh, we no, I disagree. Together just yet. I'll do that. We should do this more often, by the way. <laughs> uh, no, I think you'll find that uh, democratic presidencies have not been coy about taking a fair share of some bad decisions as well as some of the best decisions. The escalation in Vietnam, aspects of the financial system, um, the notion of this being a purely conservative world order is an interesting one, and Paul Miller writes about this. But I do think there are some fundamental continuities that unite administrations, and I'm sorry to say it, that unite a pretty continuous foreign policy establishment, of which I don't think Mike is yet in, but I wish him luck. <laughs> uh, right here. I see some hands, and I will call on them now or later, but right here in the middle, and then I have one here. Why don't we, uh, right there, and then the gentleman there, uh, right there. Yeah. My name is Stephen Shore, a wonderful series of talks and viewpoints. No one mentioned the problem that whenever a president of the United States negotiates with a foreign leader, uh, however diplomatic and polite the president of the United States might be at the moment, the, 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 the task is still of getting this foreign leader to do what his or her electorate wants them to do and not to be seen as succumbing to United States pressure. So could the international order be liberal or conservative, be bettered with great America, greater American diplomacy in selling American wishes to the, the, the respective publics that vote for their foreign leaders? Good question. I think that's up for you, Jeff. I'll just give one um, example of this from the Obama administration. Uh, in a way, it was relatively easier, emphasis on relatively, for the U.S. and China to come to an understanding around um, uh, their respective commitments on the Paris Climate Agreement than it was to ultimately convince India to come along because the Indian government had to respond to uh, domestic political pressures like those that existed in the United States and ultimately led us to withdraw. This is the, the, the challenge with democratic decision-making on some of these foreign policy commitments. And that was a multi-year effort to not try to dictate or demand or provide ultimatums to the Indian government, but rather to try to bring them along step-by-step over the course of meetings in Copenhagen and Cancun and Durban and ultimately finally Paris. And I think as a positive example of that, I would say on the flip side, uh, it was my personal experience in government and I think anyone who has served um, any period of time would recognize that there is a certain gee whiz quality to American diplomacy. Like we just kind of think if you go and you say, this makes sense that everyone else will see it. Obviously, it's better for all of us, isn't it? And, and we sometimes fail to recognize the, the range of contextual factors that might lead a leader, whether they're democratically elected or accountable to public opinion, even if they're not democratically elected, to go ahead and make a decision. And we could certainly benefit from a more instinctive capacity to put ourselves in other people's shoes than we do. The, the natural American method which I think is not, it's not negative. It, there's a certain kind of 
admirable quality to it, even if it's maddening, of just like, you know, we're problem solvers. We're going to go out there and solve the problem, whatever it is, and not take the time to say, hold on a sec, how will this be perceived and understood from the person we're asking something of? We can certainly bear improvement on that. That's something President Obama tried to underscore often. We didn't always live up to, but was one of his main messages in 2007, 2008, was to think differently about how the rest of the world perceives American leadership and power and how to make accommodations for that. Uh, right there. Hello, my name is Evan Sankey from Johns Hopkins SICE. Uh, Mr. Sullivan, I have, a, I have a question about something you said early in your initial remarks. You, you juxtaposed a world of dog-eat-dog -dog balance of power and a world of rules. And I'm wondering if it isn't the case that the only reason we can talk about rules is because once upon a time, America was strong enough to say that there were rules. And, and one rule in particular, I don't think they're all created equal. We, um, Mr. Mazar mentioned that, you know, the post office and the international aviation, but there's one rule in particular, which is the rule against violent aggression. And it seems to me that if you're going to rebuild the system while insisting on that rule, that there really is only one country that is powerful enough to enforce it or that once was powerful enough to enforce it, and, and that that one country is this one, and that it might not be willing to do that anymore. Thank you. Yeah, a great question. Um, it goes to show how when you kind of break things down into these simple binaries, you, you maybe create more problems than you solve. And I think Mike put it well when he said that this system of rules, this order that we're talking about does not exist independent to power politics. Like it's not like it replaced power politics wholesale and now we just have a nice schematic for international cooperation. Power politics does lie at the heart of it. Um, I don't agree with everything that, that Bob Kagan writes, but one of the things that he constantly stresses in his defense, maybe much more aggressive defense of the liberal international order than anyone on this stage has, and, and his view that American primacy is, is critical to that, is he says, at the end of the day, it is enforced by power. That, that it is the United States' capacity to make sure people ultimately end up abiding by these rules that is at the heart of this matter. And our power was preponderant at the end of the Second World War when most of Europe and Asia was in ruins and, and we controlled uh, a huge... Um, segment of, of global wealth as well as overwhelming military power. And now we're at a, at a moment where that balance of power has shifted both on the economic side and the military side. So the bargain has to shift as well. And that's what Mike is talking about with adjustments in, uh, in the nature of the order. But fundamentally, yes, on the question of whether or not the rule against changing borders by force or violating the territorial integrity of another state um, uh, through the use of military force, it can only be responded to if a powerful actor in the system is willing to push back. And if they're not, that, that can erode. It can erode over time. There's no doubt about it. Um, and so I didn't want to suggest that you either have a purely zero-sum dog-eat-dog world or you have a system of rules and that you don't end up with the blend of both. I guess what I would argue is that a system enforced by power that is built on a proposition that is fundamentally positive sum in nature, 
which says we believe we can do better, but you can do better too, is a more durable, sustainable system that others will buy into than one where you say, well, we have power and so we can go to each of you and tell us to give us stuff and do what we tell you to do. That system, which is the system, the kind of predatory unilateralism that I think Donald Trump has brought that is far less durable and sustainable over time. Uh, Patrick and then Mike. Well, the people of East Timor would certainly agree with the proposition that the norm against aggression only holds if a great power is willing to uphold it. And the issue here isn't really, isn't whether or not there are rules or whether or not rules are enforced by power. The issue here is the other side, which the, this part of the table doesn't want to talk about as much, which is the reality of the exercise of privilege. After 9-11, if Russia had been hit by uh, terrorists, if, w would the United States have reacted well if they had given themselves the kind of global hunting license that America gave itself? No, they wouldn't. If Mexico decided tomorrow to form an alliance with Russia or China, voluntarily and by consent. Would this be agreed to? No, it wouldn't. There is a clear exercise of privilege and power relations. I'm not shocked by this at all, but I am surprised that it doesn't go mentioned. Mike. So uh, I, I agree with that. As I said, I think that, that doesn't, I mean, yes, that's true, but there was also um, the emergence of rules and institutions that countries saw as beneficial on their own terms, despite the fact that the United <laughs> States was doing some of that stuff. Part of my concern is that I think the, the dynamics Patrick's pointing out are more and more evident at a, in, a, in an environment that is more and more multipolar, and therefore the United States won't be able to get away with as much. But I think on the question of rules, um, <coughs> you know, first of all, I think it's arguable whether countries would attack other countries absent a great power that can stop them. I mean, they don't do that a lot, and they do right. do it sometimes even when great powers can respond. So that's not the only deterrent effect that's involved. Right. And I think I would, you know, will U.S. power be stronger or weaker absent these institutions or rules? To me, it's self-evident that it would be weaker. Would we, if we have an interest in promoting nonproliferation, and maybe if we withdraw from the world, we can say we don't care anymore, although I think that's still not good for U.S. security. If we have an interest in promoting nonproliferation, are we stronger or weaker in pursuing that interest because of the existence of the NPT, the IEA, and the associated other agreements around that? When we have a situation like Iran and North Korea, we rally the entire world in different ways to dramatically different effect, but because they think there's a rule. I think, and in our conversations, it's, it's, it's just very clear that talking to folks in Asia, for example, they're very concerned about China's growing power. They see it as a threat to their interest. They see it in pure power terms. But they also see a lot of what China's doing as a violation of the rules. The Hague ruling on the South China Sea is not irrelevant to the countries in the region. The respect for international law. Now, will that make, you know, in and of itself, the rules stop China from doing what it wants to do? No. Again, it has to be paired with U.S. power. But if you get to the point that countries are thinking normatively in that way, and they want countries to respect rules, then you've created a world in which for China to attain the global status that it wants, you can at least hope that it perceives a need to play to some degree by some rules, which is why I think if we have problems with their trade behavior, we're much stronger coming at it in a multilateral fashion. If we sit across the table with a lot of friends and allies saying, we all see you breaking these rules, it's a power play to be sure, but it is also a sense that there is something at stake more than pure power. And I would say it is inarguable that in international politics forever, but certainly since World War II, that there is a perception by many national leaders and leadership groups that there is something going on more than pure power. 
The question is whether the United States makes that its friend or it becomes the focus of, of those rules uh, in a bad way. Okay. Uh, I have hands in the front right here and here. I'm Bill Klein. I'm a retired military physician. I, I'm particularly curious, and maybe I'm missing out on our own history, but there seems to be something different about the base of our current president, who, which so often seems to have values totally contrary to what they see every day, and they're so solid, they just haven't changed much at all, it seems. But within that context, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts, particularly from some of the ideas that I like I've heard earlier today that uh, we should see our leaders as symptoms and not the disease or as hurricanes and not the climate itself. <laughs> but within that, what are the, what is the climate and what are the uh, diseases and then does it relate at all to the, this odd quality of no matter what our current president does, the base doesn't change? I, actually, I'll, Respond to that first, sir. Uh, colleagues and, um, and I are writing a book on on President Trump's ideas and how they fit within this broader discussion. Um, I do think one idea that he has held and he has spoken of this even just very recently as being consistent thirty years, more than thirty years, which is quite contrary to the liberal order, e even as we've all discussed it here, it pertains to issues of trade. Uh, and the notion that trade is in fact not a zero-sum game, that you in fact, there is mutual benefit uh, that's derived from free exchange. Uh, he does not seem to believe that. He believes that it's zero-sum, and therefore if someone wins, then someone necessarily loses, and he further interprets that we have been losing more than we have been winning. Um, to your second point, I think, What's troubling to me, most troubling to me most recently, is the extent to which people who would have five or 10 or 15 years ago uh, found those arguments nonsensical have flipped on issues of trade. And I think that that's something worth pondering a little bit. We've all, everyone here has talked about that a little bit, about the nature of the international economic system and how it's shifting and how we address it politically, right? Um, Donald Trump had an answer politically which was if the, other, if the world is going, growing richer, which it clearly is, then it must be at the expense of the United States of America, which I think it clearly is not. I'll just add one thing. I, I, I think that's right, and we should, it's worth a further exploration of the political economy side of this because I think it is really central to the long-term story, but I think it is not as important to the Trump story or the Trump-based story as the activation of racial identity as a key feature of how people relate to their society, their government, and the world. And I think you're not just seeing this in the United States, you're seeing this in Europe as well. Uh, and this kind of illiberal, neo-fascist sort of uh, set of forces um, is not new, but it is certainly newly emergent in, in the national political debate. And Russia in particular is both stoking it um, and, and trying to provide it with the resources and, and space it needs to grow. I sort of stumbled to the finish line in my remarks over this point because I do believe in the resilience of the international system, but the thing that gives me pause over time is whether, in fact, our own democratic compact, what we think of as kind of the American creed, is so much under duress right now that, in fact, it's hard to even talk about the broader international system and its resilience because we have to focus on the resilience of our own democracy, largely for this reason. There, the, the economic inequality dimensions, I think, 
exacerbate and accelerate this, but this underlying issue of what it means to be an American, I think is really fundamental to why we are where we are right now. Patrick, uh, you want, you, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think one thing that Jake and I and Mike agree on to, to various extents is that Trump is partly the product of a, of a set of systemic things, deep, deeper things. I think where we disagree is that I think one of those things that helped to create this crisis is this what sounds like a very benign and innocent thing, this pursuit of international leadership, which sounds very different to a lot of voters to what it sounds like people here today. Um, in fact, Mike wrote a few years ago the following thing. If Washington continues to cling to its existing role, leadership, on the premise that the international order depends on it, the result will be increasing resistance, economic ruin and strategic failure. Well, I think he was right. It got us mounting deficit, war without end and Trump. It's really not fair to quote me against myself. It's very rude, and I condemn you for it. Uh, and with that, Filed of the foreign policy establishment. I mean, that, that, I'll just quickly say, I mean, that gets to the, the fact that I agree with you 50% is, yes, I, I think we've had a, a broad strategic situation measured in so many different ways, financially, but in terms of our defense commitments that has been insolvent for some time. That word is used extensively by Peter Beinart in a new uh, Atlantic article, uh, which I think is very good. Um, and, and, I, and I have believed for a while that we have to adjust that. To me, again, that is different from saying that the United States should not lead. And actually, Patrick and I were talking last night, and I don't know if Jake agrees with us, that I think over the next, the, the grand strategy debate in Washington has been heavily weighted at the polls, where you have sort of the primacists on the one end, and either the, the isolationist or sort of the, you know, offshore balancers at the other end, who basically, in some cases, in practical ways, want to withdraw from a lot of U.S. alliances and really ratchet back day-to-day -day U.S. leadership a lot of a lot of the processes that Jake was talking about. To me, there's a missing middle there. And that is the, the key question for us in the next couple of years is, how does the United States lead in a solvent way? How do we lead in a multilateral way? Of course, in many ways, we're doing that already. We're already trying to think about it. Um, you know, building partnership capacity, a big Defense Department priority is about building up others to do things. But that, to me, is the challenge, is not to run away from leadership, and be, but we're willing to do it in a different kind of way. I, just one, one caution on this. I don't know. I mean, I think it's just so hard to know how important this U.S. role in the world was to the election of Donald Trump. But I would just point out that... Trump has increased the defense budget by a considerable amount with the great support of his base. He has expanded the U.S. military footprint across the Middle East, uh, in Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, other places, without much of his base being all of that resistant to it. Quite the contrary. And for me, this whole attack on globalism has more to do with immigration, identity, open borders, sort of who we are as the West, than it does with these questions of whether the United States has underwritten global leadership too much. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm just a little skeptical that, that the dominant drivers that brought us Trump were lay where Patrick and Mike were just saying, there's got to be something to that. There's something to that. And the trade stuff that Chris was talking about is a relevant factor. But I, I have some skepticism on that point. Just quickly, if I could finish up. Sure. And, and I wasn't, I, I think that's a problem for U.S. policy of getting that in balance. Right, right, I don't right. think, I agree with you that it's not the origins. I mean, I, I frankly think it's not that hard to figure out what's, I mean, people have been talking about this for 30 years. You have globalization tearing away at the um, 
the national identity, uh, the, the demographic homogeneity of countries. Within countries, you've got inequality growing, and then you have you know, the gradual rise of however you want to describe modern hyper-bureaucratic society. It would be amazing if huge proportions of a lot of populations weren't in rebellion against this process, you know? The, the, the challenge is for policymakers to realize that and take actions that um, you know, address those problems. And we've had several presidents in a row, frankly, that have now been elected, Trying all to. saying, I mean, for one thing on foreign policy, three presidents in a row who have said, we need more emphasis at home because the American people are hurting in various ways and you know, we have to rejuvenate American society. Well, right. But anyway, so I don't think that, I think the fundamental dynamic there that's led to a lot of this, immigration is a piece of it, inequality is a piece of it, Racial identity is a piece of it, but it's all a product of this larger, long-term, the growth of populism in Europe is a 30-year phenomenon. It's not a three or five-year phenomenon. So this has been coming. We just haven't done a good enough job getting ahead of it. I think we still have time, which is why I'm more optimistic about the potential resilience. And the question is whether our political class can, the overclass can make the right choices. If you're curious about why Donald Trump has not shifted positions as much as his rhetoric might suggest, you should read Patrick's article, International Security. Okay, last question right here in the front. Make it a good one. Thank you. Uh, my name is Ethan, I'm with American University. Um, so I believe Mr. Sullivan and Mr. Mazar, during your opening statements, you said um, the foreign policy establishment needs to do a better job of explaining what the liberal international order is and why it's good for America. Uh, and I was hoping you could expand on what that message looks like. How do you explain to the American public why this is beneficial and what it is? Well, maybe if I had a really good answer to that question, Donald Trump wouldn't be president. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so I come at that with some humility. It's interesting, actually. I, um, I, Mike made that observation. I gave the anecdote, which showed I, I, didn't, I didn't actually say it. And there's a reason I didn't say it, is I am a little worried that within my community, this view that we just need to do a better job explaining is the key issue as opposed to, okay, we need to think about, as Mike and I were talking about, what does the better in Build Back Better mean? What are the changes? What are the actual substantive elements of getting to a better foreign policy, a more durable foreign policy for the United States? And here I would say that a starting point for being able to make a case for the kind of system and systemic leadership that I've been describing. And I'm unapologetic in saying, I think the United States needs to play its leadership role because somebody has to, and that it is in our interest, is that we have to solve for what I think one of the crucial shortcomings that's been exposed over the last 30 years is, which is our foreign policy has not taken sufficient account of the impacts of our decision-making abroad on the middle class at home. And I think being able to look people in the eye and saying, we are making that a central feature of our foreign policy the way the Germans do and the Chinese do, and basically every other country in the world does, then gives you the ante at the table to be able to explain why this cooperative system on issues ranging from climate change to terrorism to stopping Ebola to stopping the financial crisis from ending up in a Great Depression actually ends up helping Americans. But you're not going to get to that second order if you haven't been able to sufficiently make people confident that you have connected, that, that you don't just think about the foreign domestic interplay as we have to be strong at home to be strong abroad, 
let's have to think about what is our strength abroad doing to help us be more strong at home. Uh, and that's something I do not think that we have taken sufficient account of, Republicans and Democrats in foreign policy. So just quickly, I would add um, that the, I think, um, you know, Gallup asked a lot of questions on trade. Uh, one of them is, is trade basically beneficial for the United States or harmful? And it was six or nine months ago, I forget, that they recorded the highest ever positive result for trade in the history of asking that question. That's one small example that on a, a host of issues, the residual intrinsic support or, or faith or, or appreciation in the American people that uh, and uh, some sort of interlinked international system benefits their interests, I think, remains very strong. And I agree entirely with Jake that the problem is not explaining that as much as it is making clear what we are doing to address some of the problem, you know, the, the externalities of that system, the problems that have come home to American communities. If we do that, the, the, the continuing support, I mean, I was actually surprised looking at a lot of this data over the last couple of years that on immigration, on trade, on support, the EU support within Europe wobbles, support for the UN, all sorts of things did not fall off a cliff, not in, in, in any way. So the, the, the appreciation is still there. I think people are just looking for a signal that someone is actually doing something on their behalf within the constraints of that system. If we do that, I think we'll be fine. That's the question of whether building, we can build back in a way to get bipartisan support for an agenda that the American people think is doing that within the context of a shared system, then I think they will be very happy to continue to show some degree of leadership. Very good, we are out of time. I wanna thank my panelists. Please join me in thanking the panelists for their remarks. <clears throat>